leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Developers of cancer immunotherapies are in a race to find combinations that can distinguish their products for specific indications. Biomarkers, which have played an essential role in the development of targeted therapies, have proven a much more complex challenge in the realm of immuno-oncology. Nevertheless, biomarkers may be the key to winning the competitive battles in immuno-oncology. We spoke to Rachel Lang, managing partner of Bioness Partners, about the role for biomarkers in immuno-oncology, why immuno-oncology companies have much at stake in the hunt for biomarkers that can better select patients for their therapies, and the role biomarkers will play in the move toward real-time oncology. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about biomarker development, why drug developers have focused on developing cancer therapies paired with appropriate biomarkers, and why immuno-oncology is radically changing that landscape. Perhaps we can begin with the role biomarkers have played in targeted cancer therapies. Can you, can you start by explaining that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um Biomarkers have played a, a substantial role in oncology over the past few years. Um, as, just as a bit of, of history, when we first started treating cancer, we, we did that with the traditional chemotherapies that everyone is aware of today, which are essentially un, you know, untargeted. There's no biomarker they're given to, to all patients. And um, the, the first, as we know it, targeted therapy came, came out in the 90s, um, Actually, both of them came out in the 90s, so that was uh, rituxan and Herceptin, where we started um, understanding the targets behind that were driving tumor growth and developing therapies that, um, that targeted these specific aberrations or mutations. And Herceptin was actually the first, the first drug that came with a what they called a companion diagnostic, so a test that measured a biomarker and selected patients based on their biomarker status. And, and it's important because we've, we've now come to, to a world where therapy, therapy decisions can be made on a much more personalized basis. You can measure the level of a protein. You can measure or detect a genetic mutation in a patient. Um, and you can give them a therapy that is much more targeted. Therefore, it has a higher likelihood um, of response to that, and you're, you're treating the cancer in a much more intelligent manner. 
PD-1, the, the first class of cancer immunotherapies, do in fact have a biomarker associated with determining the appropriateness of their use, the, the expression of PDL one protein. You say, however, this is a relatively poor biomarker. Why is that? Yes, so PDL one was uh, was the first biomarker to be associated with these PD one, PDL one therapies. And the the main reason and, and the main issue that we have today with PDL one is that you can measure the expression of PDL1 in the tumor, and and the the thought goes that the higher the, the PDL1 expression, the more likely a patient is to respond to to the therapy. The problem is, though, that patients who do have high PDL1 expression, not all of them respond, and the reverse is true. Patients, there are some patients with low PDL1 expression who actually do respond. So that means that. If you're testing for PDL1, you can't definitively say this patient will or will not respond. Um, and some of the other biomarkers we have for, for targeted therapies are, are able to at least exclude patients from, from treatment. So for example, the EGFR inhibitors, if you, if you have a patient that does not have the EGFR mutation, you can be quite confident that they won't, uh, they won't respond to therapy. Um, but you, you actually don't have that confidence with PDL1. So that's obviously led to a number of questions around, okay, if, if we're measuring PDL1 and we're excluding or including patients based on this, are we missing some patients who actually would have benefited from the drug, which is why not all of them actually require testing for, for PDL1? Um, and then conversely, patients who, who do test positive, not all of them respond. So there's clearly more we can do to identify the right patients. Roy Herbst, the Chief of Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center, says the challenge is to turn immunotherapy back into a biomarker-driven therapy. What, what does he mean by that? It's an incredible challenge. So if, if you think about the, the sort of traditional molecularly targeted therapies, they often target a very specific mutation um, or translocation and the, the drug has essentially been created to target and work on cells that express that, that mutation. Immunotherapy is different. And so while a PD-1 inhibitor, we, we obviously know the target and it's, it's, um, it's ligand PD-L1, the, the way that immunotherapies work um, are much more, more diverse. The immune system has countless pathways that interact with each other. They impact um, a number of different cell types. They, the immune system itself can be impacted by a lot of other things going on in the body. And so I suppose it's, it's, it's a bit unrealistic to think that measuring one, one protein could actually tell us everything that's going on within the immune system. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, that's been, well, that, that's been part of the, the challenge to actually identify what, what is the proper biomarker or set of biomarkers uh, that we need to be measuring to identify these patients. How well differentiated are the various PD-1 immunotherapies? So at the moment, I think the, the general consensus is that an, up until now, there hasn't been too much to differentiate them. And I say that from a, from a scientific point of view. They're all targeting... Um, at least if we talk about the PD-1, PD-L1s, they're all targeting that 
that same pathway. So from a, from a scientific point of view, we haven't seen, seen anything to suggest that one is drastically different than the other. However, the, the strategies that these different companies have taken have started to differentiate them, at least in the market. Um, one of the strategies that has been used to differentiate, at least in the market, um, these PD-1, PD-L1, in the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors um, are biomarkers. So there are some companies that have moved beyond PD-L1 to look at biomarkers like MSI. So Keytruda um, from Merck and Opdivo from BMS have, um, have both been approved with MSI. Um, the other way that companies are differentiating themselves are through combination trials, uh, looking at these assets in combination with other immuno-oncology agents, targeted therapies, and chemotherapies. But from a scientific point of view, um, I think the jury's still out as to whether one of them is, is very different from, from another. Well, there is this race you mentioned of, of testing potential combination therapies with immunotherapeutic agents. How is the industry generally approaching the selection of these combinations? Is this a, a portfolio-driven decision? Is there some scientific basis driving the selection of combinations companies are, are testing? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and it's evolved over the past few years. So interestingly, I would say starting several years ago, once once we saw the data from monotherapy with these PD-1 and PD-L1s, and, and they started entering into to the clinic and then getting approval, um, the I, would, I, I say the, the four sort of leaders in this space, so BMS, Merck, AstraZeneca, and Roche, Genentech, they they put a high emphasis on on combination trials, and so in the beginning, this was done through two main avenues. So companies that had a big pipeline internally were able to to set up um, combination trials with their internal assets, so combining their PD one or PDL one with their own other oncology assets, be it another immuno oncology or a targeted therapy. And other companies and decided to, to have a look outside and strike up partnerships with, with other oncology companies. And in the beginning, these were very simple collaborations. So they, they collaborated on one or two specific trials. Each company provided access to, to their product. In, in many cases, there were no as we think of it, no deal terms or money exchange. It was purely a collaboration to see what sticks and what works. These four companies have set up numerous, numerous collaborations over the years to look at hundreds of different combinations. The, the number of combination trials in development is, is pretty staggering. It, I think it goes up every day. Um, and so that generated a lot of early data. Now, just in the past few months even, I've seen now a move towards sort of more traditional partnerships. So I think once we start seeing this data come in, if it's positive, then we may see more formal collaboration. Um, it's, it's a bit unclear as to how this is going to play out. I'm sure everybody was aware of the, the data from, um, from the pembrolizumab and the IDO asset from Insight, the phase three trial uh, was stopped because of lack of efficacy. So I think people are taking another look to see, okay, how can we really intelligently 
design combinations and, and make sure that we're selecting the right ones to go to phase three. One of the challenges of biomarkers for immunotherapies is complexity. Why are biomarkers for immunotherapies such a, a complicated matter? Yeah, it's, it's complicated because the immune system is complicated. So when, when you have a, a targeted therapy that's targeting some kind of molecular aberration or, or mutation, you, you need to focus on what's driving that cancer cell. And if you can cripple that, you have a good chance of killing the cancer cell. In this case, we're, we're targeting the immune system. And so we, we need to be, we need to have an asset that is targeting the cancer cell, but also targeting the immune system. And it's that interplay between the tumor and the immune cell that immunotherapy is, is really getting at. And so, in order to do that, you're relying on the activity of a lot of different immune cells, um, a lot of different proteins that are released by these immune cells. And this all has to happen in, in sort of the right way at the right time, this whole idea of the tumor microenvironment. And so to give you an example, in going back for many years, people have looked at, um, at T cell infiltration into tumors. And they, they found in, in some cases that, you know, the high level of T cells that you have in your tumor, you should, you should have a better response to therapy. Well, it's true, but those T cells not only have to be in the tumor, they also have to be functioning. They have to be activated. And there are lots of signals from the tumor cell that can actually dampen that activity. And you also need some other immune cells to, to help out, um, with the tumor with the immune-mediated um, tumor killing. So there are a lot of factors that go into, into this interplay that all of which could potentially be the reason why the immunotherapy is working or not working. Um, and so from that, you can imagine that you, you may need to test a number of different things. So you may need to look at the levels of certain immune cells. You may need to look at the mutation burden in the tumor. You may need to look at PDL1 expression. So it's it's complex essentially because it's likely that we need to measure a number of different factors as opposed to just one single genetic mutation or translocation like we do with other targeted therapies. So is the expectation that you'd have some kind of a panel on an assay that would be ultimately developed? So I I think that's where where people are starting to look at. Um, there's been recently a lot of work focusing on the notion of tumor mutation burden. Um, so this is essentially looking at um, the number of mutations that a tumor has, uh, and we know that that can confer um, increased immunogenicity and, and then um, better response to immunotherapy. Um, and then beyond that, if we look a bit sort of earlier stage, there's still a lot of work to, to be done and, and a lot of work ongoing, trying to, to better understand the, the, the types of cells that are involved in that immune-mediated um, tumor cell killing. Uh, it may, in fact, be that in the future we need to measure a number of different cell surface markers and also the levels of T cells and the levels of other immune cells going on, plus the mutation. So I think the, yeah, sort of the the future-looking scenario could be one 
where we're measuring a number of different things. Easiest would, would of course, be, as you said, on, uh, on a single assay. One of the other issues is that cancer and the immune system are both dynamic. And, and one of the challenges here is being able to monitor and measure the compensatory effects that occur in response to therapies. Does that suggest anything about what a solution might look like? Yes, it does, and it's a, an extremely interesting topic. Um, and, it, you know, it's something that's been discussed for, for many years within oncology, even before the, the advent of immuno-oncology, of course, now is, is even more critical. So we, we talk about this as the notion of real-time oncology, so essentially the ability for physicians um, and potentially even patients to track and monitor treatment in real time, so to speak, and that would allow them to adapt treatment much quicker than they do today. So today, what happens is a patient comes in, they're diagnosed with cancer through a biopsy, maybe a CT or PET scan, they may have blood work done, and they're started on a treatment. And depending on, on the patient and, and the treatment that they're on, they have a follow-up you know, every, every month or every few weeks, whatever it is, at which point, um, they may have another scan, um, some more blood work. But really what happens is at some point the physician will see that the patient isn't responding to therapy or the, the, the tumor has progressed, and they'll make a decision on what treatment to try next. The idea would be to move from, from this model to something where we could actually track patients weekly, maybe even daily, and that, of course, takes technologies that are much more accessible, much more easy to use, and frankly, much less expensive than doing a tumor biopsy or running a PET scan. There's a lot of buzz about liquid right. biopsies. Any role they might play here? Yes. So liquid biopsy is, is definitely one of the, the tools that will make this vision of real-time oncology uh, a reality. So the liquid biopsy, obviously, it's, um, it's, it's what it sounds like. Instead of, instead of taking a tissue sample, you can take, it's usually blood. It may be of the analytes, but it's usually blood where you can detect DNA from tumor cells. Um, so you can imagine that's much easier to take from a patient. They can come in much more frequently than, than coming in for, for a tissue biopsy. And that should allow physicians to be able to track how the treatment is working if they see an increase. Um, in tumor DNA, in the blood, they can bring them in for, for further assessment and then make a decision to change or, or update their treatment in some way. What are companies doing to address the biomarker challenge of immunotherapies? So there's, there's a lot going on on, on the research side, um, a lot of activity to try to understand or say better understand the, the mechanisms that go into why a patient responds or doesn't respond. Um, there's also been a lot of uh, a lot of collaboration between the pharmaceutical companies and the diagnostic companies, which is is something we've been talking about for many years now, um, and is really starting to become, I would say, critical in oncology. It's it's an interesting note that so I've been attending ASCO for about I think seven or eight years and. In the last year or two, I started noticing that in addition to the big pharma companies with their exhibit booths, 
now we have companies exhibiting like foundation medicines, like Gardens, and these diagnostic companies are becoming really critically important because they're the ones that that oftentimes have these liquid biopsy tests or these um, big NGS panels where we can measure a number of different things at one time. And so what we're seeing is is the emergence of these companies with these new technologies, these new tools to, to allow us to run a liquid biopsy. Um, there's also companies that are being set up essentially to help, um, well, help physicians and help companies to make sense of the data. So once you test all of this information, what, what do you do with that data? Uh, how can you harness the power of that? So there are companies now that are solely focused on helping companies to make sense of all this biomarker data that they're getting from, from the testing and try to turn that into something actionable to, to, in the end, impact treatment decisions and patient outcomes. How much of an issue is data being siloed in the different immunotherapy companies? Is there some case to be made for the benefits of industry-wide efforts here? Yeah, so over the past few years, there, there have been a number of initiatives that have been set up to essentially on, I would say, on all aspects of immuno-oncology. So there are some that are looking at comb- running combination trials, recognizing that it's a really, a really big task for, for one company to be able to run all of those different potential combinations that, that could be interesting. Um, there are also initiatives that are exploring the, the biomarker question as well. Um, and central to all that, as, as you said, we need collaboration. We need open sharing of data, um, of clinical data that will allow us to, to take all that information and turn it into something meaningful. So there's been a lot of, um, a lot of collaboration, not just between the pharma and diagnostic companies, but also between, um, clinical initiatives and, uh, and nonprofit. Uh, type of organization. It, it seems like the bigger drivers of doing this work are outside of the first generation of immunotherapy developers. Who's really driving this kind of biomarker development? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in in the beginning, um, you, you know, when you had um, when you had Opdivo and, and Keytruda come out, um, obviously one of them came with a biomarker and one didn't. And, and we asked ourselves that same question, actually. We thought, okay, is, is it going to be in the interest of these leaders to, to actually look for a biomarker um, strategy and pursue that because they're first and, and theoretically um, they have, you know, quite a, a big chunk of the market. So we, we initially thought that the biomarker question would may be driven more by the, the smaller companies and also by the diagnostic companies. But actually what we've seen is there's a, an incredible amount of effort by, again, by these sort of four PD-1, PD-L1 leaders in the biomarker space. Um, and so all, all four of them have biomarker initiatives ongoing. They're looking at biomarkers in trials. We've seen a number of partnerships that have been struck up between um, the pharma companies and the diagnostic companies. And so I think there's a, there's a realization that, um, you know, as we talked about in the very beginning, PDL1 is, is not the answer here. It's not going to be the, the one and only solution to selecting patients for treatment. Um, and because of that, even these companies are, are, are looking for 
the next biomarker um, that will help them better refine their patient population. Because at the end of the day, I, some someone will come up with with that. Someone will will come and and find a new biomarker or, or look into that way to better select patients. Um, and so we think it's important to to be involved there, and and that will help to remain competitive and, and differentiated. This is going to be a topic of a panel at the Biointernational Convention in Boston in June for people attending bio. Where can they find the panel? Yes, it is. So we we have a panel titled The Future of Cancer Real-Time Oncology. It's in the oncology track. The panel is Wednesday, June the 6th at 1.45 in the afternoon. Um, I will be moderating it, and I'll, I'll be joined by a great panel of speakers um, with me, Dr. Stephen Eck, Anne-Marie Martin, and Dr. Eric Schad. And people wanting to learn more can also take a look at the October 2016 issue of InVivo for a discussion on the topic. You can find the article on the BioNest Partners website. Rachel Lang, Managing Partner of BioNest Partners. Rachel, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Denny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.